0: Hello, and welcome back to Identity Architects, the podcast that spotlights individuals changing the way that data is used to deliver more engaging data driven experiences. I'm your host, Ben Chiketti, and for this episode, our VP of Sales UK, Nick Henthorne, sat down with Mark Evans, Managing Director for Marketing and Digital at Direct Line, to discuss identity, data privacy, consumer trust, and much, much more. Before I hand it over to Nick and Mark, just a reminder to hit that subscribe button so you know when the next episode of Identity Architects lands. But without any further delay, Here's Nick and Mark.
1: So Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, For anyone who doesn't know you, could you give us a quick introduction to Mark Evans and your 10 years at Threatline? Pleasure to be with you
2: today, Nick. Yes, who am I? Well, I'm, I suppose, defined by being Managing Director of DirectLine Group, looking after marketing and digital. I've been there for 10 years, quite a stint. My longest job and longest I've been at any one place as well. But, but I am in the process of moving on, which we might come back to. Um, but I broadly have looked after marketing and digital in an organization that's been through a lot of transformation in the last 10 years and had a lot of fun in marketing, but also beyond. So the role has stretched beyond that. And I currently sit on the exec uh, and also on the board of our legal services business. Um, but as I said, I'm, I'll tease for now and just say that I'm, I'm moving on. We can come back to that.
1: We're looking forward to getting a well-earned break by the sounds of it. Um, well, thank you for that. Um, I'm going to start by diving off into a few quick-fire questions, if so that's okay, before we go into some 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 core content. Um, starting with, what's your earliest memory of either advertising or marketing?
2: Well, I, I had to think about this one because I tried to go back as far as possible. And it was actually some of those classic adverts. So if we remember, you remember Milk Tray and you remember Hamlet, but it was actually, I think it was Heineken or Carlsberg, that the water in my yoga. don't taste like <laughs> what it water. it And it was that, um, was that I don't know, was that Carlsberg or Heineken? I can't, I can't remember. But I remember that line massively.
1: It was the posh lady who then sipped the uh, the alcohol. Um, yeah, can't even remember oh. what the brand was. I'm going to place a bet on Carling for that one. Don't Carling,
2: Carling that label, yeah, that was it. Yeah, Carling. Also, I remember I mean, that Sonic label. as well back then. You know, I mean, it was those were maybe the Halcyon days of of core TV advertising. And Of course, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. TV advertising is still important it has been for us at Direct Line, um, but yes, it's a very sort of old fashioned ad concept.
1: Fantastic. And what was your first job in the sector?
2: In Greece living in Athens for Mars as a graduate trainee, working on Mars and Maltese, as I properly was the cat that got the cream and had a fantastic time for about a year over there and then left the day before the massive earthquake, which was epicentered, really almost on top of where where their Mars office was in
1: North Athens. Wow. Mm. Um, <laughs> well, well, predicting earthquakes apart, if you look back to then, um, based on what you know now, what would you say to yourself? I wouldn't say anything
2: different other than I would have listened a little bit harder and earlier to a profound message I got on the night of my graduation, which was to seek to achieve success and significance simultaneously. And I was, I've always been a quite an achievement-oriented person, and that softened over time. Um, and so probably the nub, nub of it would be to enjoy it a bit more, actually. Enjoy it in the moment a little bit more.
1: Fascinating. That's a hard thing to do when you're at that sort of stage in your career, isn't it? And really trying to, well, as you say, achieve, hit goals. Tough Uh,
2: tough balance, yeah. Uh, I'm always reminded of meeting Johnny Wilkinson and him saying that when he won the Rugby World Cup that he kind of felt nothing. He felt quite hollow and cheated and celebrated for a nanosecond and then wondered what the hell he was going to do the rest of his life. And then I think subsequently learned how to be present and enjoy it in the moment. But for all his... Success and achievements. He doesn't have really learned how to properly enjoy it.
1: I tell you what, you're taking a step back down memory lane here. We've got we've got carling adverts, and we've got the most important drop kick we'll ever see in history. Love it it's on his wrong foot, indeed. <laughs> um, what do you love about what you do right now, and specifically the, what you do within the industry you're in?
2: Oh uh, well, I, I fell into the industry kind of as a happy accident, and I'm forever grateful that that is the way it worked because. Uh, the innate energy and possibility and passion and pride. I may be biased, but I just don't think that exists in the HR industry or the finance industry. Now, I, I I guess I don't know what I don't know, but that's my my bias and my assumption. And I just think there's there's a there's an energy and a buzz. It's quite thrilling, quite fizzing, and it's not compulsory to be a masochist, but it probably helps because sometimes it's the school of hard knocks. But out of that, you know, the, the achievements are really meaningful.
1: Fantastic. Um, so obviously, this is the Identity Architects uh, podcast, and, and within advertising, well, certainly we're obsessed with this concept of identity, specifically the ability to identify individuals across devices, platforms, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. How would you take? that concept of identity and explain it to a 10-year-old? Well,
2: there's a a bit that goes before, which is that consumers are beautifully irrational. So they want things personalised, but they don't want them to be creepy and all that. So, But for a 10-year-old, the best metaphor I could come up with, imagine you're at a party and somebody has face blindness. I think a 10-year-old could get that. They don't remember names and faces and they keep coming up to you and introducing themselves to you over and over again, you just get really, really annoying. So the benefit of remembering somebody's identity is that there's a continuity, a familiarity, kind of a bit of a trust, you know what to expect. But through the eyes of a 10 year old, wouldn't it be annoying if somebody just kept coming up again and again and kind of cold hitting you, trying to make a conversation?
1: That's a great way of explaining how to persistently identify. I love that. Um, Thank you. Um, I'm going to join these next two together. What keeps you awake at night? And what then motivates you to get up in the morning?
2: Genuinely, there's nothing that keeps me awake at night, much to my wife's annoyance. So she's a nurse, so she did really the hard end of having kids, as in the the night stuff, Um, because I was sadly I was traveling and working pretty hard during those early days. Uh, And so I've never really sort of come across that whole thing of, you know, the elastic snaps and you're never as good a sleeper again. I, I am the best sleeper I know in the world. I've not had... Ask that many people, but so nothing keeps me awake at night. um I, I, You know, maybe I'm just fortunate there. But but it maybe it links to what uh, what keeps me motivated in the morning, which is actually I use the the Wim Hof method, uh, which some people may be familiar with. So that includes the breathing and the ten minutes in ice water every morning that I'm around, and that's part of my how do I stay balanced, um, relaxed non-anxious, yeah, on on top of myself, which I think then feeds into perhaps being a better sleeper. But yeah, I, I do the hardcore ice plunge thing every morning and that's really
1: yeah what starts my day. That's really impressive. Is that what and have you got something special at home for that or do you just do the ice shower or do you, you know, do
2: I hate I hate cold showers because you get cold again and again and again. And it's really not very zen. But I did invest in the early days of lockdown of in a an ice tub. I mean, it's nothing fancy, but it sits in the back garden with a lid on, a bit of chlorine every now and again. And so plunge plunge there sort of neck deep um, for 10 minutes. And and honestly, you don't feel cold because we we grew up as a species or we evolved as a species in hostile, cold, um, dangerous environments. And and the Wim Hof thing is all about getting uncomfortable with being uncomfortable, which is all we've ever had until we started watching Netflix on the sofa eating Nandos and then got a bit sort of out of shape as a species. Bizarrely, it really is invigorating and enlivening and sets me up well for the day. And I would encourage everybody and anybody
1: to to do that, to start the day. You're a braver man than me. I think I'll stick to a warm shower for now. Uh, you never know. I might change my mind at some point, but uh, yeah, very good. Um, Last of the quick fires for you. If there was a song that was a soundtrack to your life, what would it be? It would be Baz Luhrmann's, uh, the only song he's ever written.
2: It's called Sunscreen, which I think came out in 1997, 98. You'll have to look it up, but he basically narrates a life message and all sorts of profound things which we've played to our kids many times over. Uh, including messages like, don't, don't be jealous. Sometimes you're behind, sometimes you're ahead. The race is long, but in the end, it's only with yourself. So it's just packed full of profound stuff. And that would be a song that I would love to say has been my mantra. Uh, obviously veered from the path occasionally, but but it's a it's a good one if, if uh,
1: people want to look it up. You may also notice so I've been scribbling something down It's to go and listen to that that very song. It's pretty good. Um, yeah, masterly rate Baz in terms of production of films but didn't know he'd written a song either. So yeah, Only one. I think it was a one only and probably
2: it was written for him but he narrates it personally and uh, oh, I think he narrates it. Does he narrate it personally? I don't know but
1: it's his one hit. It's a good one. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, thank you for that. I think um, we'll move now on to a bit more of the topic of the day which is obviously identity. Um, I'm going to start with uh, I suppose a bit of the the issue that's been growing and growing um, and becoming more, everyone's become more and more aware of the third party cookie, it's, it's now almost extinct. And I say almost because Google have announced once more that they're going to extend the deadline. Yep. But what's your thoughts on the status quo of all that in the industry right now?
2: Well, the first thing I would say is that I'm not a technologist, so this won't be a technological answer. I think everything is still very fluid. Google's motives. Well, let's actually let's not talk about Google's motives, but 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 ultimately, it's um, it's still a bit of a moving feast. I mean, I think new solutions will emerge. Identity solutions. They're already, you know, I, my inbox is already peppered with post-cookie providers, um, and there's no doubt that there are contextual solutions which will do some of the job. My, my main feeling about this. This re- something really caught my ear the other day, which was that Unilever have now got one billion. First party records. I thought, I mean, my, my, I'm, I,
1: people can't see this, but I'm looking at your face, Nick, and that was my reaction as well. I was like, no, Is that I, really true? I didn't want to just jump in, but I was, my, my, my face was actually working on, on fast maths and it's not particularly fast, but, but I'll just go with one eighth of the world's population.
2: What's the quality? What's the permissions? What's, what's the, the usability? Um, but of course this this whole thing about first party data and um, to fuel D2C i think that's that's a really interesting dynamic and it is it just an arms race so i was with loreal the other day and they were saying it's actually really hard and expensive to get there and i'm thinking yeah i don't disagree but is it actually mission critical for everybody because if, if, if it is an arms race for race first party data and the utilization of that, then you just can't ignore that. And it, it makes me think that sort of some of the important dynamics around this conversation are actually in the boardroom, is consent, a boardroom conversation, is the addressable universe and every, all the various impacts, ups and down on that, well understood across the organization and optimized. So I just think that the stakes are raising. And I'm really curious, well, whether the Unilever stat is true or not, it, it signals the direction of travel, may be?
1: a couple of really, uh, really interesting themes there. One, the importance of first-party data to organisations who are arguably detached from the customer. So, pick on the Unilever as example, where there is a an ever-growing base of organisations who are giving second-party data to markets. So, the you know the retailers of the world. But also, I love your comment on, on the boardroom there, uh, mm-hmm. and and clearly, you know consent and how you can communicate to your customers should be treated as something exceptionally important. So thank you for that. I think it's really, really interesting. Um, Moving it away from the boardroom and back to to the CMO, first party data is integral to marketing strategies when you've got that direct relationship with your your customer. And of course, direct line is a great example of an organization that has that first party relationship. What would you recommend to, every brand or advertiser um, really sort of from now onwards to prepare for a future where the cookies disappeared?
2: Well, the the short answer would obviously be, you know, treat treat it like gold (laughs) and because it's easy to score in goals and lose access or lose the interoperability of different data sources and so on. So I think it is that, cherishing it. And it links to the point about it being a board-level conversation, the, the whole organization. I mean, often, I guess, people don't realize how important it is or how it can be uh, damaged. So it's it's setting clear for us, you know, it would be clear KPIs. It's a measurable thing that we can put a value on. And that means that we think very hard about entity structures across a multi-business model, multi-brand model to make sure that, that it's available to all. Um, particularly in a world where everything's going to be more networked um, and uh, more systems based and uh, the future of insurance has happened in China already uh, and it is that whole network effect and we, as we seek to emulate that it's it really is just making sure that everyone understands the value of data and for us you know, we do get a lot from people quoting to us which is really great data but it's not universally accept uh, used across the organisation yet because we haven't completed the single customer view so i think i think this is a bit 101 i don't have any silver bullets but getting as much data with as much high quality with as much access as much interoperability um, perhaps even
1: weren't cmo objectives 5 years ago they absolutely need to be known. really interesting so start start with the basics then start with the foundational layer within your organisation where you yeah can... absolutely
2: i mean the eco stuff network stuff I talk about is fairly fancy pants. But even before that, there's, there's lots of stuff just having, you know, it's almost like, you, is, do you have a live blue Peterometer of how many addressable first party contacts you've got and what are the constraints around them? I mean, let's not forget GDPR and ICO and, you know, there's, there is a, there is a sort of a regulatory need to be on top all over this, but I think it's just much more of a sort of much more of an offensive, offensive, as opposed to defensive mindset. Uh, and, um, you know, it's a core part of capability build. Hence, the dot, dot, dot for direct line is that we called out data literacy as one of our core competency builds. Um, it's not like people were illiterate, but there's always another gear. And that links to really the utilization of our data. And it's like that's across the board within the organization, is it? Yeah, well, for us, it's slightly different in that we move to the Spotify agile model, essentially. And so we have a data chapter. And so all our very clever data scientists are federated across cross-functional squads. And so that's part of the upskilling. But within the data chapter, we have a data academy, which is first and foremost to upskill those data scientists. But at the sort of the, the basic intermediate levels of that competency build, absolutely, it's for everybody in the organization. So all the materials are open source within internally. Um, and we're trying to put as many through. I say we will come on to do I say we or they. I don't know. I'm sort of somewhere in between. But um, the organization... Uh, really trying to get as many people through a level three apprenticeship in data science um, as a signature for what we think is going to be important.
1: Fantastic. Proper investment into into the data future of the business. Love that. Um, you've touched on this already a little bit, the, the consumer. So without consumers, there's no business <laughs> at the end of the day. Um, and that very much includes data privacy. And, and we've talked about the shift away from third-party cookies already. But um, in a world, and, and indeed, you've also mentioned GDPR there, what are some of the challenges you see in the industry as a result of, of, of the increase in regulation in the market?
2: Well, it comes back to something I said at the beginning, that it's a very delicate balance between privacy and personalization. As I said, that, that beautiful irrationality of consumers, you know, why, why should they have to realize or care that there's a trade-off? Or a fine line on the organisation side between knowing me to the point that you can be more relevant versus I, there's things I believe you shouldn't know about me. But of course, the, the two sides of the same coin. So I, I just think there's, there's some delicate balances and there's some there's some a bit of instinct about where an organisation should tread that fine line um, to, to to strike the right balance. And one of the challenges, therefore, of the CMO and marketing is to help the rest of the organization to understand some of these things. And it's a bit like educating the organization on marketing per se, which is often seen as a coloring in function. And I can think of a few key examples that bring that to life for me, where we've got people in the commercial side of the business who are literally tearing their hair out because something that seems so obvious and binary to them is actually much, much more gray. And needs to be treated with a bit more subtlety. So, it, it, the, the the role of marketing then becomes educator, evangelist, um, to some extent enforcer, and actually a bit less about the the technical side of managing it, but more managing the stakeholders and the influences
1: around the data itself. If that makes sense. Yeah. So so effectively. Um, Effectively becoming the that supporting that balancing act between privacy and performance from yeah, the exactly. Very well put.
2: Sorry, that's very well put. And so specifically in the role that I've been in for the last ten years, I'm I'm the responsible person, the approved person, the you know the the regulated person, and you know in theory I'm the one that goes to jail if we get this stuff wrong. Uh, and so that's that provides good caution. But also at the same time, everything I talked about at the beginning—you know—the optimism, the energy, the passion—the you know—that is that is the juggle that goes on inside my head, and I'm sure many other many others' heads in real time. You know, you want to go for things, you want to achieve, you want your organisation to be successful, but you don't really want to
1: do a stint in choking. So, well, you, you're, I mean, you're raising a, a really interesting point towards the next question there, because that's that's very much the company view. Of, uh, of 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 the risk associated with getting that balance incorrect, but if you flip that onto the consumer, from your point of view, why is it so important for companies to put the consumer first and include them in their wishes and business decisions? So so you've got the business view, which is yep. control regulation. Flip it back to the consumer. What what is it about the relationship with the consumer that's so important?
2: Well, you're, you're, this is a deep one, or you know, this is existential, and for me the I, t- I spent 10 years at Mars where there were five principles that guided everything. Uh, and the, the very first words, which are sort of ingrained on them inside of your eyelids if you spend a bit of time at Mars, said the consumer is our boss. And that was really heartfelt. Love that. And that permeated everything. So it's just it seems to me so inherent that that is fundamentally true for a sustainable business. In all senses of the word sustainable and as consumers change and evolve as they surely do and will, it's the role of the organize of the marketing folks in the organization to bring the outside in and bring the future forward and help an organization understand how it can meet customer needs better than their competitors and, and I'd maybe draw on in financial services you know one example would be PPI, which was very profitable, very complex and very misunderstood by customers uh, and obviously, in the end, was not sustainable. Caused huge write-offs, huge breakdown in trust, and what what an absolute mess! What the antithesis of sustainable business, and it's was it was founded on a complete miscomprehension of what consumers really want or, or, or what they they understood. Uh, and I'm sure there's many others, but it's just so intrinsic that marketing is not the communication function; it's the consumer representative, which is why I say that you know it's good CMO has their hands on the customer data, because that's really the identity of their customer base, but also has their hands on the customer experience, because that's how the brand manifests beyond communication. And if you're going to truly represent consumers and customers into the business, then not in a sharp elbowed way, but in a sort of holistic and integrated way, you've got to have your paws into all of these dynamics.
1: That's really interesting. You've, you've touched on on trust there, which is is clearly a big part of every organization, or it should be. What do you think needs to change in industry and how can, how can businesses come together to redefine relationships with each other? Great question, no shortcuts.
2: I love Rachel Botsman's definition of trust. So Rachel Botsman, um, I do a podcast and interview with her and she's, I think one of the uh, greatest global gurus on trust. And her definition is that trust is a comfortable relationship with the unknown i.e. transparency is actually the enemy. If you need transparency, you don't really trust somebody. It's thinking you know what somebody's going to do when you can't see what they're doing. And the good news and the bad news there is that that takes time because it's based upon evidence of what has transpired when you weren't able to know what that company was doing for you or not doing for you. So so the, the dot, dot, dot is it talks to consistency, repeatability, uh, and and getting to the right outcomes over time, as opposed to any sense of asking for trust or assuming that trust will be given freely, because that comfortable relationship can only come from evidence.
1: Very much like a one-to-one human relationship then.
2: Yeah, and it's true of... Yeah. If- of friendships and marriages and so on is that, you know, trust is easily broken and because then all of a sudden I'm no longer confident when I can't see, and therefore I may seek more transparency. And that's almost, you know, it's almost the worst thing, isn't it? You know, it's so evident really when somebody says I need to know more, they're actually saying, I don't trust you. I think Rachel's really nailed that particular
1: dynamic. Absolutely agree. Uh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Re- yeah. Um, really good. Um, finally for this section what do the consumers need to do in order to be best equipped for companies collecting their data and what tools can the industry offer them
2: well I think it's tough consumers don't really know what they don't know um, I, think, I think the onus f- fairly and squarely falls on organisations to again there's a balance here to give control but not be too complex and actually, that's not easy because the, obviously the more control you provide, the more complex it is for a customer to manage something, particularly across multiple platforms, I mean, multiple companies. You know, h- how much time, energy and effort and care do they really have to give to this? And so I, I think clearly the answer is to empower customers to give, to have the right level of control with minimum complexity. So it actually comes down to really nuts and bolts stuff like simplicity of wording yeah. and the user experience and not, you know, it's, so it's not fancy pants stuff it's really in the detail to empower customers and I, I, I'll we, we did some work with plain numbers where the level of numerical literacy in the country is absolutely shocking and they uh, play numbers, do a survey, six questions, basically quite quite basic percentage-type questions. And uh, I think something like 16%. With unlimited time, 16% of people got these fairly basic percentage-based questions right. It was things like, you know, if something was £2 and it goes up in price 20%, what's the price? Unlimited time. You know, and then I think only about 25% got even five out of six right. So we have to understand that the average reading age is 13, the average numeracy is really poor. And so if you're really going to empower customers, it's, it's gotta be really, really basic. And the, interestingly, the terms and conditions of for insurance are scored as postgraduate level, uh, literacy.
1: Right. Keep it simple. Yeah, I mean, that's there's, there's a disparity right there, isn't there, at the end of the day. And uh, I, I love that theme. Um, you know, actually, it probably flows back into to trust again and the experience that a consumer has with you. If, if they can transparently understand what you're going to do with them in a nice, simple and easy-to-understand way, you're going to engender more trust with the customer.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And then when that's born out you can imagine that they might feel more on side for more. And so um, if if an an inside-out perspective is, I really want to cross-sell, I've got some KPIs, you know, how can I, wham, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. But but clearly that runs counter to all sensible logic about what consumers are really thinking about their relationship and what they're getting out of it. It goes back to the consumer orientation right from the start, you know, just really understanding what consumers want and need not least with regards to consent and privacy.
1: You know, it's this, it goes back to that balancing act game, doesn't it? It's uh, you're, you're, I'm a motor insurance customer of yours. Um, you want to know my home insurance renewal date. Actually, that's a benefit for you and a benefit for me if it's sold correctly, because at the end of the day, that's going to mean a, a better policy price, for example. So it's, 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 it's taking things and putting them back into that those simple terms for consumers to understand the value maybe.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And we we do get a a normal distribution of quality of home renewable dates from motor customers for all the reasons you can imagine. And, of course, insurance is the epitome of a trust business in that you you hope you never need to use it. You have no idea how they're going to show up when you really need the service because something's gone badly wrong. Um, And so, actually, every single interaction – is in the consumer's mind or subconscious a proxy for how they'll be when the time comes, and so that comfortable relationship with the unknown is is built up through every single every single little journey, every single little interaction, which is why user experience is so important because then maybe that's the best proxy for how capable they'll be come the time.
1: Yeah, if it's incomprehensible, difficult to understand, etc., at the front end, then how's that going to look when something actually when something bad happens? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Talking of insurance and talking specifically of direct line, you're going to be leaving at the end of this year. So uh, what's next for you?
2: Well, for a few years now, I've harboured the thought or dream that I would want to go and do a portfolio non-exec career. And in truth, I've already done a a few things towards that in the last few years. But ultimately, I'm approaching 50, so I don't know. This might be a bit of a midlife crisis. But for for the next decade, I want to have more fun and learn more and and help more. And so why not do that, help more people and businesses on a broader basis? Uh, And so roughly, roughly, I'm thinking I want to do one day to a third pro bono stuff, which I already do a bit of and do a bit more there. One day to a third of of coaching, which I already do, but just on the meter. And maybe ideally coaching... Senior marketers who've maybe just got the top job, exec job, and then three days to two thirds of non-exec roles. Um, there's, there's, it's, it's a well-trodden path. Many people do it, but you can be on a board of the company in twenty to twenty-five, maybe thirty days a year, uh, and help help them more in an advisory space, so off, on the side of the pitch rather than on the pitch. Um, but I just think there's the potential for a really enriching uh, and fulfilling. Time there, and, and of course, you know, I, I will miss leadership of teams. I will miss a sense of belonging. I've been at Durant Line for ten years, yep. um, but equally, there's some things I won't miss. I think actually, post pandemic, leading big teams is a bit harder and a bit less fulfilling than it used to be. It certainly f- feels that way for me. So that the in the mix of all of that, I'm really happy to be jumping off to off a cliff to a sort of a pen sketch future, and I'm sure there'll be undulations, but I'm really excited about that.
1: Well, I think setting off with the aim to have over 50 days a year pro bono is admirable. So, uh, uh I think that, that that's really, really fantastic. Really fantastic. Um, I'm going to wrap up with final questions if that's okay. Um, first of which really is what do you want to say that you haven't said already, anything missing, anything we've not asked that you might want to talk about in a bit more detail?
2: Whenever I talk about data, the one thing that comes to mind is that we shouldn't lose sight of the importance of instinct and judgment. And when the hairs are standing up on the back of your neck because you just feel something to be so, that's really, really important and to be held in balance with uh, a compelling data story. So I'm a big fan of building whole brain teams brain marketing teams which have the balance of left and right brain and creativity yeah. and data etc uh, and I think the best decisions are made with those two things in balance and some of the some of the boldest decisions I've made in my career have had uh, either haven't had the data up front or we've, we've done the data part retrospectively after the decision would be made fill in the blanks retrospectively but I, I, I always feel a little bit and Bit worried about a data conversation that doesn't respect the other side of the brain, and holding
1: the two in balance, of course, is the is the magic. I'd say the common theme of today has been a balancing act. I love this. Yeah, I this just, is... I've,
2: I'm reflecting on that as well. Yeah. Maybe it's because I'm at this sort of balancing act time in my own life. But uh, but it was ever thus, wasn't it? I mean, if ultimately if, if decisions were easy and binary, then life would be a doddle, wouldn't it? But not many things
1: are binary. <laughs> Indeed. Um, Mark, thank you so much today. I've got one last question for you, which is uh, this podcast around individuals who've pioneered new ways uh, to use data to deliver best of customer experiences, etc. cetera. Um, I know that uh, Pete Marquis recommended you. Uh, I was just wondering who you might uh, think about recommending someone you admire in the industry. Well,
2: if Pete hadn't recommended me, I might well have recommended him because he's awesome in this <laughs> regard. It would be Mark Joblin, actually. Mark uh CMO at NatWest. She's hugely respected. I've done a few things with her in the past, and she's brilliant. Um, she's also just been crowned Marketing Week Marketer of the Year. And then very specifically, she recruited the head of data at Direct Line into her team.
1: <laughs> pinched him. So I'm quite, I'm quite keen to find out what they're up to. So there you go. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time today uh, and all your, your fantastic insights. Really, really appreciate it. My pleasure.
0: Thanks again to Mark for joining us for this episode. I continue to be thrilled to hear so many of our guests bring the conversation back to consumers, as it can sometimes feel like the consumer gets lost or forgotten in the conversation. But as Mark puts it, ultimately the consumer is our boss, and when it comes to their personal data, in the future they may vote with their data, only sharing it with companies they trust and receive value from. All that leaves for me to do is to remind you to hit that subscribe button so you know when the next episode of Identity Architects lands. But until then, thanks for listening.